0: On January 7th, 2013, SDCF spoke with technical directors David Benkin and Martin Pavlov about understanding automation, what every director should know. Whether you are a producer, director, choreographer, actor, designer, or theater fan, this conversation allows the listener a comprehensive overview of automation in theater and provides the understanding necessary to maximize your working relationship with your technical director. Hello, I'm director, choreographer, Christopher Gatelli, and you are listening to SDCF, Masters of the Stage. This program is produced by the Stage Directors and Choreographers Foundation and presented by the American Theater Wing.
1: Hi, I'm, I'm going to lead off. Uh, Marty Pavlov. Uh, I want to thank everybody for coming. Um, My background is in managing uh, technicians and stagehands on the shows and large events. I've also uh, managed them in construction environments and under uh, strict uh, OSHA protocols and scrutiny, Um, um, so I'm familiar with that uh, arena as well. Uh, I've implemented uh, permanent automation systems for theaters, and I only moved to New York uh, four years ago. I'm married to the lovely Laura Penn. Um, and uh, since that time, moving to New York, I've worked as an associate to both David Benkin, Rose Palumbo, and a wonderful man by the name of Gene O'Donovan. Um, for those who don't know uh, of David Benkin, he has 30-plus years of experience managing Broadway and national tours as a technical director. David has a vast insight knowledge. I've kind of roped him into this. He <laughs> um, has vast insight knowledge of automation as it's used on Broadway. Uh, I've asked him to come here tonight to share them with us. And I can tell you from firsthand experience that nobody approaches automation with the rigor that David does. Um, I'm going to skip around a little bit. Um, I've... Uh, only the Broadway ecosystem uh, uh, provides uh, the plethora of equipment that we use uh, the West End in London and Las Vegas are, are comparable um, so we have um, this is kind of a leading edge uh, industry for us um, I'm going to go over basics some automation basics and terms terminology and I'm, and I'm going to cover some industry safety aspects and I'm just going to be 10, 15, no more than that. Uh, David is going to talk about the decision to automate and go through some of the pros and cons that directors, along with set designers, uh, go through. David will also touch on um, a tech session in regard to automation queuing. Um, this is a, a arduous process that we all go through, and uh, I think his experience will speak very well to this. Um, just as I assume a director would not enter into a, a rehearsal to stage bows without a plan it's unwise to enter into an automation queuing session without a plan of what you want this isn't a written plan but it is a concise visual plan of what you want Any, any all of your forward thinking and all of your work as a director will help you with this and will help people like us Um, There are three reasons why you want to know exactly what you are going to do with automation. It's visual magic. You can do things with automation, uh, flying scenery, moving scenery, and flying performers, that you can't do manually anymore. You can repeat that magic on every performance. Um, It's wonderful. It takes a great amount of effort. But that's one reason uh, why you would use automation. Or th- th- there's re- three reasons to know exactly what you want to do with automation. When, the second reason, in, when you're in the theater, the cost of getting the automation installed and then queuing it is extremely time-consuming, much more so than it, do, than it would be with uh, uh, manpower. That co- those costs can be astronomical. Um, depends on if you're on straight time or overtime, but it's several thousands and thousands of dollars. When you add actors and musicians, if it's a musical, it's those costs are tremendous. So you want to know you want to know what you're going to do with it. To my knowledge, nobody's ever been seriously hurt or injured by uh, an automated moving uh, lighting instrument. Uh, doing something unexpected the same cannot be said with automation safety is another reason to come with a good plan of what you want to see uh i want to give a quick overview of components of automation system this is isn't anything for you to remember um in college this would be a a year-long course before you would actually be designing these components and utilizing them um but automation is different um Automation control is a closed-loop system, which means that the computer tells the winch what to do. The winch moves the scenery. It has an encoder and talks back to the computer. The computer makes decisions on what the encoder is telling it. And if you're not afraid by the fact that a computer is making decisions without human (laughs) interactions um I don't know what will scare you um but it's it's a very precise and it is a closed loop system and it works very well uh I want to talk just briefly on about loads and, and in particular overhead loads uh in the theater and in many aspects of the entertainment industry we deal with heavy weights overhead um these weights are in two forms static load which means a piece of scenery is hanging permanently or a sound system will hang permanently in the front of house it's a static load it's not moving then there are dynamic loads this gets back to automation dynamic loads are heavy weights that are moving they could be lightweight too Um, but when you stop a moving piece it weighs quite a bit more many years ago um, I was working for a rigging firm and we had to do, our assignment was to hang acoustic clouds to dampen the uh, high reverberation in an arena. And we did a simple test. And we contracted another company to perform this test for us. You can think of it as a single theatrical batten that would have acoustic material draped from it. It was suspended by two points. Uh, we had. We had a, a load cell on one point that would graph the load, and we released one point so that the single pipe fell and the, and the remaining uh, load-bearing uh, wire rope um, held the weight. So think of it, simple pipe falling. This weight over here, 14 times the original static load. So that's what I'm talking about when I'm talking about dynamic loads. Um, shock load is that moment when the system is str- is stressed, and of course, rigging systems are designed to absorb the shock load. But that's you you will hear that term if you haven't already. Um, there here's some industry-wide safety considerations that are all that we already use, and in the years to come. As the technology increases, I'm sure that we will be adding more. We always have a person on stage when we're queuing automation systems, when we're checking them out. This person gives a very distinct clear. He's there to see that it's not going to run into other automated pieces or other scenery or people. At a certain point in time, the stage manager and the assistant stage managers absorb that um, utility. So you have to be very careful, and, of course, your actors have to know uh, when the piece is going to move and to be out of its way. Uh, We've already covered uh, moving systems. I was talking about moving systems. Use what is called a design factor. It is a safety factor, and that design factor in moving systems is eight. So the strength of all of the components from their static load to their breaking strength is eight times the original uh, weight. So you have a safety factor or a design factor of eight, and we, we use that, and that's an industry-wide thing. Uh, our industry uses constant load rated motors. These motors come from the manufacturing industry, and they can run in a factory 24 hours a day. We don't exercise them to their capacity. But that's a good thing. They're always there, ready for us to go to work when we ask them to. Uh, The two shops in New York that I am familiar with have a rigorous sign-off procedure to all of this equipment, and in particular the winches. Um, It's exacting and it's rigorous, and um, I'm not going to go into detail, but you need your reading glasses. one of the things that you will find is dates and times and personal signatures for every component of an automated system. Um, and it's great because you can track if a certain batch of winches uh, failed in a certain way, you can track the date that they were made, and you can check the other ones. So it's very exacting. Uh those are uh, some concepts and safety considerations. I'm going to go over some terms that you're going to hear. Um, automation is designed for movement. Uh, one of the things that you'll be asked to do is how fast you want it to move, and we use feet per second. And thats it's kind of a hard visual thing. I'm quite used to it, and it's still a little bit difficult for me if, I, if you ask me to uh, demonstrate uh, 30 feet per second or 120 feet per second. Um, But that's... The designer of the automation needs to know that uh, before the system can be put together. Uh, When you automate a piece, you're dealing with... uh, When you're queuing a piece, it starts at a zero point. Or, let's say this, when you... During your pre-show checkout, the technicians will zero the piece. That means that forever after, during that performance, that piece of automated equipment, whether it's a wagon moving on stage or something flying down from above, will know will be using utilizing that zero. In a in a difficult situation, you may uh, during an act break re-zero the piece. Um, from the zero piece, you you're going to ask it to move at a certain speed, feet per second. To get to that speed, it's going to ramp up or accelerate. We call it A-cell. So you, when you ask a piece to move, it will A-cell up to a certain speed, move at a constant speed, and then ramp down or decelerate, and it will reach its target. So uh, speed, A-cell, speed, D-cell, and target. It's, it's simple. It gets complicated very quick after that. Uh, all co- automation consoles have a stop button. a stop button is a programmable decel rate. Um, that is the first button that the uh, uh, automation operator will go for. If it's an emergency, and if he or if he senses he or she senses it's an emergency they will hit the e-stop. That is an instant cutoff of of power to the winch, and it will stop. It will induce shock loads. That's why it's not his first choice, but in an emergency, that's what he would do. But if the stage manager says, oh, stop that piece, we're going to go back, he'll hit the stop button, the piece will slowly come to a stop, and then he'll go back. Uh, Limit switches. Limit switches come in two flavors. One is set by the computer and and set by the operator of the automation system. And then there's what's called a hard limit, which is an electromechanical switch that's set during the load-in process. So this piece of scenery that flies in will not go through the stage floor. It will hit a hard limit, and that will be set. But you can think of it like a layer cake. The hard limits, the electromechanical limits are outside... The soft limits are inside. You should always hit a soft limit before you hit a hard limit. The soft limits sometimes will be reprogrammed for a more precise look um, with lighting, with act, with performance. So limit switches is another term I want you to know. Encoders. Encoders are the feedback system. Um, they're attached to the winch. And they give pulses per revolution. These pulses, uh, the lowest is about 500. Uh, the higher ones are about 1,000 pulses per single revolution. That's the encoder sends that signal back to the computer controlling the automated piece. Um, if you hear that there's an encoder problem or you have a bad encoder, which happens from time to time, it's very important. Uh uh, David Benkin will discuss this but this point can't be made often enough automation queuing is non linear you can't you, you or you shouldn't you should it always has to happen in it you cannot think of it in a linear fashion you can't jump around it's very difficult for the operator to, to jump from this scene to this scene in act two back to act one and back to the end of act two it has to be thought of as linear so that that automation operator can step through that sorry for the confusing way I said that but that's what I meant to say always think of it as one consecutive action after another you can as a director jump around but you'll be heading to Starbucks for a coffee while that automation operator backsteps through those pieces Um, I'm going to leave you with one thought um, this, there's something in the, uh, this is something I, I picked up from the aeronautics industry uh, many many years ago in the late 40s and 50s while the uh, 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 engineers were trying to achieve the speed of sound in jet aircraft they knew all of the engineering elements to do this they knew aerodynamics they knew uh, engine thrust, power required to do that and yet they still couldn't do it and they were perplexed as to why they couldn't do it all their planes could do was a very fast, low subsonic speed. If you took, as it turns out, if you took a cross-section of the plane, of the fuselage and where the wings spread out, that cross-section became an area, and it was quite large. If you grafted, it looked like a snake had swallowed a small animal. It was quite large. The answer was simple. They had to slim down the fuselage where the wings spread out, and the plane cruised past the speed of sound. It follows that artistic vision must sometimes have what are thought necessary elements trimmed to allow for the essential, large, and costly part of the vision to succeed. This rule always comes up when design elements that cost several million dollars are used but once during a performance. If you really need it, what can you do without you have to make choices. So I'm going to wrap up that up, and let's stop. <laughs> Hello. Hi. Well, there's a lot
2: of information from what Marty was saying. When I would, you know, feel free to just jump in and ask a yes. question in the middle if you want to, or we can certainly do questions at the end, whichever <laughs> you're comfortable with, or take notes. So. Um, going to kind of carry on from where Marty was and I'm going to kind of start off with you know why would you want to use automation in a show Uh, there's obviously pros and cons as there is to anything I think the biggest pro and Marty touched on this a little bit is the ability to do complex movement and make them repeatable it's kind of two separate things. I mean, there's complex movements, there's also repeatable. Uh, I mean, complex movements, it, repeatable gives you things like being able to time movements with music is probably the most common thing. You know, if you want if you want a cloud, you know, Lion King is a good example. The opening of Lion King, all the clouds peeling back, that's all timed to the music. Obviously, the conductor has to kind of watch what's going on and keep up the timing of the, of the set pieces, but it'll be the same every night. Your actors, if they're dancing to it or, you know, if they've got to walk across stage, you know, they'll get there at the same time that piece of scenery gets there every night. Uh, There's also more complex movements, which you're starting to see a little bit more. Uh, Wave motions. This is something that you haven't seen a whole lot, but you're going to start seeing more of... uh, I did a Little Mermaid, that was one of the things the director and the designer really wanted. They wanted, every time there was a water scene, they never wanted anything to stop. You know, so when something flies in, instead of flying in and stopping, they wanted it to sit there and move, go up and down a little bit. The ship wanted to move, everything wanted to move constantly. It was part of the way of differentiating sea from land. But, of course, you know, that's almost impossible to do with a manual flyman. The guy would get a little tired up there moving the line set up and down, say, a foot, six inches, and it wouldn't look good. And, again, it wouldn't be repeatable because, again, your lighting designer wants to know when this piece is up here that night. It wants to be up there at that point during the same time because they're doing moving lights that are tracking along with it. So that's kind of what we call wave motion. can be any any kind of reciprocating motion but most of the, and that's a fairly new system there are still systems out there that don't do that when we did Little Mermaid we really got locked into one vendor because at the time we were doing it there was only one vendor that really supplied that in an easy way to program uh, overlapping cues, again, another thing, which, you know, you, could hit, you can do that manually too, but, you know, the ability to start one cue, that cue triggers another cue and triggers another cue, and they can get very complex, and you can trigger cues. You can trigger cues off of positions. You can trigger cues off of time. But, again, it all comes back to that repeatability. You know, any of these things can be done with a large group of flymen up on the rail or a large group of stagehands on the floor, but it's hard, it's hard for me to sit here and say that you can do it repeatedly every night because people change out and just somebody else comes in one. And you've got trainings that you can't afford to do. Um, another thing that's important with this and is becoming more and more important is repeatability from the point of view of projections. You know, everybody's using projections now, it's a big part of the show. Projectors, one of, you know, with the new digital projectors, they can do amazing things, but again, they need to know where the scenery is. I and mean, there's two ways to do that. One way is the stage manager gives a go to the projection programmer and the automation program at the same time, and you hope both those people press the button at the same time, and then the projection follows the scenery across the stage. What's happening more and more is you take a signal from the automation system and send it back to the projectors. So now the projectors actually know where the piece of scenery is. Uh, uh, we're using that on Motown. We're doing right now. We've got, like, 16 different effects that we're tracking through and sending signals back to the projection system so they know where things are at at any given time. I did Woman in White several years ago, which was a very complex show. We were actually programming onto curved surfaces that were moving at the same time, so it wasn't just a matter of following something. The digital computer actually had to make... Calculations to adjust the look of the the actual image on the curved surface so it looked normal. But as the curved surface was turning, it needed to know where it was. So everything was talking to everything all the time. Even if the piece stops on stage, the projection would stop with it. Um, An obvious thing, too, is just being able to move very heavy and large items at a push of a button. Uh, You know, if you've got a... 40-foot-wide by three-story house on stage, you're not going to move it with stage hands. You know, it's, that's, you know, an obvious one. You go ahead and automate it. Uh, there's also labor savings. And honestly, I'll bet that as much as almost anything probably started the whole thing towards uh, automation. It it's definitely it can be significant. Uh, a flyman on a fly floor nowadays or a stage hand can be a, somewhere in the neighborhood of $3,500 a week. For that amount of money, you can afford to, you know, run 10 to 15 different automated effects as far as what the weekly cost is. So that's something to consider. Uh, it, and it comes into play in a couple of ways, you know. It's like how many, how many people on the fly floor how many pieces have to move at the same time. And, you know, it'll come up as a director. You'll very often get to a point where you'll make some decisions early on, like, okay, we're going to... These five pieces never move together, but these twenty have to. So we're going to automate those twenty. We're not going to five. And then inevitably, you get in the theater. Wow, we really want those two things to move together. Okay, you either you either you know the technical director either come back and say you can't do that, or it's going to cost this much money to go back and re-automate and re-change it, or we have to add another person onto the call. That's usually the part that never happens. You know, sometimes you can uh, add another automated piece onto a show. So those are kind of the pros. I mean, the labor kind of goes both ways. I mean, the cons for doing it. I mean, a reason not to do it. It costs more upfront. I mean, an automated effect, a simple automated effect like flying a drop in, costs like four to six thousand dollars between prepping the stuff in the shop, which is some of the stuff Marty was talking about, installing it, getting it working. A uh, larger effect can be much more expensive, but for a simple effect, it runs four to six thousand upfront costs, not including the rental. Uh, and again, what Marty touched on, it requires significantly more time during tech. Uh, I find nowadays between lighting and automation queuing, you'll consume the majority of your tech time, and by majority I mean 75, 80 percent of your tech time will. You know, it's not going to be about talking to actors or how to move them or talk about how they're what they're feeling in that scene. It's going to be about getting that piece of scenery or those 30 pieces of scenery from this position to that position and those hundred moving lights to follow it all along. It just it really eats up a lot of time. I mean, the end result visually is beautiful and it it, it can make a show. But just keep in mind, it's gonna, it's gonna eat up a bunch of time in tech. I mean, it's always, I think it always kind of shocks everybody, especially directors, when they get in the theater, how much time they're gonna spend dealing with the automation. Um, and part of that is you know that, that decision between automate or not. I mean, it's actually much faster to get on the headset with a flyman and say, you know, bring that piece in another foot, or we're like Marty was alluding to. We want to jump to the end of the show, so fly, fly everything out, uh, go to that Q23 and fly those three things in, or you know, we really want to move that that pallet on stage with that piece of furniture really wants to be three foot to the right, you know, a guy goes out on stage and drags it over. It's pretty easy. If it's automated, it's not that easy. I mean, it's just time-consuming. As as simple a move as moving a pallet from one point, you know, if it's really a matter of moving a pallet from here to two feet to the right, that's pretty quick. Pretty quick is still five minutes. Uh, A more likely scenario is you've got 10 or 12 things involved, and you decide, you know, the whole speed of getting to that sequence, it's all written to come together in 20 seconds. You know, it's not working with the music. It's not working with the acting. Needs to be 15 seconds. That can take a half an hour, and that's really frustrating when you're in the theater. And I can appreciate that. It's, what I spend a lot of my time doing is trying to calm everybody down. It's like we're working on. I'm on the head. You know, how are we doing? And you know, and the opera operators. it'll be soon. It'll be soon. But and it's part of what you know. Marty was saying too. You got to be more careful with lighting. You know, you can kind of throw it out there. Well, we'll move the light over there and just move it over there. With, with scenery, you can't really do that. you really got to think, you know, is somebody clear there? Is this piece out of the way? Is that out of the way? Somebody's got to give it clear. You know, it's, it's just very time-consuming. And once you, know, once you write it, you can't just write it and then throw it out there and try it with the actors. You have to run it once. <laughs> so it's really frustrating. You know, get everybody off the stage. We're going to run the queue. Okay, it did what it was supposed to do. Everything stopped. Now we're going to bring the actors back up. So, you know, it, it eats up a lot of time. It's, it's beautiful when it's done. I love automation. I spend a lot of time dealing with it, but just keep in mind it takes a lot of time. Um, another thing which you haven't touched on is flying actors. Uh, traditionally, you're always flying actors or actors, or things with actors on them. you know, it used to always being in the FOIA flying system, and FOI does both manual and automation. There's other companies out there that do it too. That can, be, that can eat up more time than you can imagine in a theater, flying people. And part of the problem with that is it's just it's really time-consuming. When something is hanging at the end of a line and you've got to move it, you know, if, if everything's in a track on stage and you've got to move it from A to B, it can move there and you've got A cell, D cell time, it stops. When you're moving somebody flying and you go from here to here, they don't stop. They go like the pendulum. They go back and forth. So you have to write it to go to that position. And you have to write a really complex set of cues to stop it at that position. There are some newer systems coming online that do a little bit more of that for you. But it can eat up in an incredible amount of time. Uh, I mean, some examples. We did Phantom Out in, Phantom Out in Las Vegas. The chandelier decided to want this really crazy, neat chandelier. And it was. It had like four different pieces, but each piece had to be able to move in three dimensions throughout the house. There was no way we could program it in the normal course of the show. We had a third shift that came on at night. That's, that's the, one of the assistant directors, uh, one of the, the associate designer spent eight hours a night programming a chandelier for weeks, you know, just to get these pieces. It was only used two or three times in the show, but it was an enormous amount of time. I mean, one that's a little more closer to here is Spider-Man. I mean, aside from the problems you've all read about, I mean, it's just the amount of time that's spent programming the flying. And most of that was done offline. It was done in the middle of the night. It was done with, you know, stand-ins. It was, a lot of it was done before the actors even got on stage. It was just an enormous amount of time put into it. I remember Tarzan wasn't one of my shows, but Tarzan flew like six or seven or eight people at once. I I went out to see the rehearsal one day, and I just happened to be on the in a car with the choreographer. I can't remember who it was right now, but I just remember asking her how things are going, and I just she just looked at me and kind of shrugged (laughs) her arms. And I I talked to somebody later. It's like because she was in like the worst situation. Whenever you have eight people, imagine eight people up there flying; they're all pendulum around. You know, if you want to move that one person three foot to the right, it could take eight hours. You know, it's you know, it's a lot easier when you're choreographing on stage you just say, Move over to the right and they move for you. <laughs> it's, like, it's really nice. But when they're up on strings hanging from the air, it'll look beautiful when it's done and you get back to that repeatability thing, as frustrating as getting there. The one advantage is once you finally get there, it'll look like that every night. <laughs> it's, you know, short of a problem coming up. Um, I mean, another thing to consider on the uh, downside is to err as human. To really foul things up requires a computer, (laughs) 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 and it's very true. Uh, I don't think there's – there probably haven't been many, if ever, a show that got stopped because a flyman hit the wrong trim. Um, You just move on. He gets caught up. Shows get, when shows stop almost all the time, it's because of automation. It doesn't happen a lot, you know, knock on wood, but it does happen. Uh, and you know, I've worked, I've sat in rooms with producers where the first question they come up with is, if we automate this piece and it doesn't work, am I going to have to stop the show? And it's a, it's a really valid concern. I mean, you know, you, you obviously want to try and avoid that. Uh, and you, and whenever we do, you know, there's backups in automation. We always have main computers. We have backup computers. We have the ways to take over most of the automated effects manually. But there are certain effects, especially big effects in shows. That, yeah, if something falls, you're going to have to stop the show for a little while and get it sorted out. Like It doesn't happen a lot, so but it's just something to consider, I think. I think producers think of it more than directors do, and it's probably right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, I mean, other things to keep in mind when you're con- uh, considering automation, uh, things move faster in your head than they can possibly move on stage. I, designers, directors, both. I've never been in a meeting where, you know, I heard, you know, no, we don't want it to go that fast. It's always initially, well, let's see, we we'll want to go from that side of stage to that side of stage. Well, that's, to do something like that, That would be moving at about 30 feet per second. I mean, things fall at 32 feet per second. I mean, we normally program things in a normal, about 4 feet per second is about normal for a fast-moving cue. But 4 feet per second means on a 40-foot opening, it's going to take 10 seconds to get something across stage, which could be an enormous amount of time when when you get on stage. But they just don't move that fast. And part of it is they can't, let's put it another way, they can move that fast, but you usually don't want them to move that fast. I mean, it, it, inevitably we get to this point where we try to do it at the shop or sometime earlier, you get the director and the designer out there who think they want it to move at, you know, six feet per second, and then you show them that, and, well, oh, that looks kind of scary. And it usually does. I mean, it's about three to four feet per second is a nice big thing, moves at a nice reasonable rate. I mean, really, a lot of things end up moving a lot slower than that, and, and I've... I would say almost every show I've ever done, you start at a certain speed, you start slowing things down over the course of time because, you know, they just realize that's not looking right, it's not looking good, it's noisy, it's louder when it goes faster. I mean, that's, you know, we had a, had a uh, treadmill in Priscilla, which, you know, it could go five feet per second, but I don't think, by the time we opened the show, I don't think anything moved faster than one and a half foot per second because it was so loud. And it worked, you know, we got it into the show and got it working, but you just kept slowing it down until it got to the point where it was... Workable. Um, yeah, I mean, just a note I took myself. I mean, you know, things can move fast. When we did the chandelier out in Vegas, we didn't have the luxury of an intermission to crash the chandelier when we did it out there. It was a ninety-minute show, so we had to do something really dramatic. Well. We actually brought it in at 17 feet per second over the top of the audience. I mean, 32 feet per second is falling. 17 feet per second looks like it's falling. If you're sitting underneath a 16-foot diameter, 20-foot tall chandelier that's coming directly down at your 70 feet per second, it looks like it's falling. <laughs> and people scream in the audience, and there was a blackout at the end. It was great, but that's, that's really fast. <laughs> 17 feet per second is really fast. You don't usually do that. I mean, the exception would be like magic things. Sometimes you do a star trap where somebody literally drops down through the floor uh, or somebody pops up. Up. But that's not the norm. But that's something to consider. I mean, something else to consider is, and in, in, again, something Marty touched on here is, you'll hear a lot of backstage choreography, which you always deal with to a point. You, you know, you've always—I'm sure you've all dealt with it to some degree, just for costumes and stuff. But when you get into automation, it's even more important because you've got big, heavy things that are moving off stage on a cue, and if there's somebody standing there. They can't be standing there. I mean, there's obviously stage managers watching out for this, but it becomes part of the, you know, it's part of the job of the actor too to be where they're supposed to be so that when, you know, ten pieces come off stage and are all automated, there's always, you know, some of it just choreography. It's the same thing, choreography on stage with dancers. They hit each other if they don't stand where they're supposed to be. Well, they hit scenery if they don't stand where they're supposed to be, or the scenery hits them. It's really a really more realistic way to look at it. So you decided to automate the show what are some of the options for looking at cues before you get on stage? It's, it's hard for almost anybody to really visualize what's going on with automation. I mean, it's just a lot of stuff going on. But you don't want to wait until the first time you get on stage with your entire company there to figure out, you know, and that really is not what we want to see. You want to try and come up with a way to visualize it before that. I mean, the most normal and the things people have been doing for years are models, and it helps a little bit. It helps to get a model out. At least, you know, you can certainly see the, the end look and the beginning look, and to start with you like that. And you can move things around a little bit and get a, a little bit of an idea for the speed. Uh, probably the next step for that is storyboarding it, you know, taking pictures of the model, which those things are really valuable from my point of view. When I get in the theater, those are probably the most valuable things to have a storyboard and, like, front elevation because then before you get there with the company, I know what I need to program into the system. I know this piece wants to move from there 10 feet over there, or this piece wants to you know, fly in and stop three feet off the floor. and that's all, That all comes out of models and storyboards, work with the designer and directors sitting around. Some other things that you can use which are really valuable are setting up the set outside of the theater. Often not a practical option, but, it's, but with, a lot, with a heavy show, it's becoming a little more often that you see that. Uh, whether you, probably the most common thing is to set it up in the shop. It kind of serves two purposes. As a technical director, I love to see as much stuff set up before I get in the theater as I can because it gives me a chance to debug it in a place that's a whole lot cheaper than trying to do it in a New York theater. Uh, The other advantage is then the director and the designers can come out to the shop and see it work. Uh, we're doing that right now with Motown, where we're setting up a vast majority of the show out at the shop and bringing the designers, the choreographers, directors all out there because there's a lot of movement in the show. It'll be, it's, really the best, it's probably the best way to do it because you're actually going to see the stuff move. Before before you go into rehearsal, you'll have a better idea what it really looks like to move the singer across stage. Or you'll also get an idea of, you know, that scene shift that we wrote five seconds of music for can't possibly happen in five seconds. It's going to have to take 15, so you know you've got to get 10 more seconds of music ready or you've got to come up with 10 more seconds for what the actors are going to do during that time. The other one that's becoming a little more common is pre-visualization, which is 3D computer modeling, which has a lot of pluses and minuses. It's, again, it kind of gets back to some people... Can't, some people have trouble looking at it visually on stage and really translating it to what you're seeing on stage. So, you know, it's nothing wrong. with There's just some people can't do that. They don't make that leap. And frankly, it's a leap... It can't be made complete because I don't care what you do on the computer screen, it will look a little different once you get on stage. Uh I find pre visualization gets used a little bit more in like the uh a short term, a, one, a one-off project like an industrial or something where you really don't have any time to change anything. You've got to go in with what your show is 90% in your head before you do that. In those cases, it's really kind of handy to do that because the pre-visualization can be used. You can actually program your lights in it. Some of the newer automation systems, you can actually program your automation in it so that when you get to the theater, it's all going to go exactly where it was on that screen. But I don't. I find myself, I don't find it as useful as you might think for Broadway shows because it, it, it's good to, it's good to get an I- initial idea of what it might look like, but it's hard to program the show that way, because as soon as you get on stage, you're going to want to change it anyway. So, you know, it's how much time you spend with it. I mean, for Little Mermaid, it was useful because we were doing all this wave motion, so we did a certain amount of it just so the director and the designer could sit there and kind of see what does it look like for this boat to be moving for this whole scene? What does it look like for all these waves? We, made? we could put all that on a computer screen. And it, I think it helps get something in your head before you jump into rehearsal of what you might be doing with the show. But those are kind of ways to do it uh, I'd say the pre-visualization is becoming a bigger thing it costs money to do it right now I think in another few years it won't it'll just be built into the systems you know right now most of the shops have the ability to do it but you have to do some additional work which costs money to get it done um, what else we got uh Just from my own side, as a technical director, I would suggest all of you develop, especially if you're doing automation, develop a relationship with your technical director. (laughs) Because, you know, you shouldn't... It's it's really frustrating when you're in a theater and things stop. And it will happen... More often than you want to know, especially during the tech process. Hopefully not during the shows. But you know, and you should know what happened when something stops. You have a right to know what happens when something stops. That doesn't mean somebody's going to run out to you immediately and say, "Okay, this is exactly what happened, and these three things going on." But but you know, before you're sitting there more than a couple minutes, somebody, be it the technical director or the stage manager, should be able to tell you what's going on. And sometimes it may not be what you want to hear. It may be you know we're not quite sure what's going on right now. Uh, And sometimes you know I've had to go you know we don't know what the problem. Is just, you've got a choice. You could either sit here and little work on this for the next half hour, or you can move on to the next thing. And, and frankly, if you're not if your back is up against the wall and you got an opening the next night you're better off moving on because and try and do that offline i mean it's always nice to do some of this work offline whenever you can just to get it out of the way but but offline means you know like a morning which is also when everybody else wants to do something the lighting designer has lighting work to do the technical director has things to fix so it's always tough you know it always ends up getting stuffed into your tech time um but you want to, you know, so you have that relationship and, you know, and feel free to ask your technical what's going on. <laughs> and, you know, and they'll, hopefully they'll give you the best answer they can. Um, that's kind of all the prepared stuff I had. We covered a lot of stuff. I, somebody probably has some questions or, yeah.
3: Um, a lot of lifts and turntables um, incorporate soft edges. Do moving scenery incorporate
2: soft edges? It, uh, uh, soft what? Soft
3: edges. Like uh, a lift will stop if it makes contact with an actor's foot or? Safeties, yes, yeah, safeties. Yes. yeah. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Like uh, does a moving flat incorporate
2: those kinds of things? Yeah, we always look at that. I mean, pinch points or something. Yeah. Wherever there's something that passes by, something really close, we try to put a strip in there. It's a, it's a bumper strip that actually, when you hit it, it will stop the piece.
3: Yeah.
2: Uh, you know, we always try to look at that. But you've got to be careful with that. I mean, because depending on the size of the piece, you know, a great big elevator, I don't care how you do it, it takes an inch or two to stop well an inch or two can be your toe (laughs) you know so it's tough but you you really I mean you really try to avoid that situation as best you can, but you but you still put the safeties in so you don't doesn't get too crazy. But the you, you know, best thing is just make sure nobody's blocked around it. Make sure there's clears given. Uh, you know if there's two pieces of if there's two pieces of automation that can hit each other or something. Again, the systems are getting smarter every year. You can actually write constraints into the system where the, you know if these two things are moving in the same track, you can write a constraint now and the system says don't ever let it get closer than you know two inches. So even if you write something wrong or if this piece stops, this piece will. St- stop before it runs into it.
4: Um, I've not worked with this yet. Um, And the process of the director talking with the designer, Mm. you know, in in a simpler theater is Mm. very important, and then adding the lighting designer to it. Now, it seems to me that the technical director in this is really so involved. In the scenic design. Do the uh, do the conferences include from the very beginning the technical director with the scenic designer? Do they talk before presenting to the director, or how does that work?
2: It depends on the show. I mean, generally speaking, I think it's, you know, generally the designer and the director are talking before the technical director gets hired, so there's usually not an option. I mean, in the best situations, which I've been in a few you're all kind of on board pretty early on because there's, there's certainly things I could bring to the table. It's always difficult being in some discussions because you know, being with the technical side, you know, the last thing I want to do is sit there and say, no, you can't do that, no, you can't. You can't afford that, can't do that. You know, so you always have to like, kind of hold your tongue and kind of let the ideas work out. But you do get to a point... I think it's valuable to have a technical director if you're going down a direction it's just unachievable (laughs) you know it's rather than everybody wasting their time on it you know and, and by unachievable I mean you know just physically can't be done or it's so far out of realm of you know the cost of the show it's worth saying it you know if it's a matter of this is ten thousand. and I know they only want to spend five. You know, I'm not going to sit there and say you can't do that because you know somebody'll either find the five thousand or somebody will have another idea. But if they're going down the idea of an idea that might cost two million to do, you know, the chandelier in Phantom, I think, ended up being three or four million dollars by the time we were finished with all the automation. You know, that was a kind of show where we knew we were going down and we knew it was that piece. You know, if you're doing a Broadway play with uh, two actors uh, and you're starting to get talking about a four million dollar piece, I'd like to be in the room and say you, you might want to consider something else there.
1: <laughs> but th- that said, the same type of conversation with would happen with a set designer in much more technical detail. You know, d- w- you know, with the, the, with the technical director. You know that so you would go over those those items
4: first: director, designer, scenic designer, and then scenic designer, technical director.
2: It would, I, I, yeah. think, I think... It would be nice if it could happen, but like I say, sometimes, you yeah. know, so there's, there are certainly instances where the producer gets the designer and the director two or three years before there's a show. So They're never going to hire a technical director that early, so... so I, I
4: think the director is, is trained to look at the, the play and the characters mm-hmm. and set pieces that support relationships and stuff like mm-hmm. that. But it seems to me now that this... Technical side can add a whole new bunch of options that yeah.
2: wow, we could do it this way too. No, it can, and I, and I, I love being in those situations where I can say that. And I have, you know, it's like we could do this. You can, yeah, we can do that. <laughs> like, okay. well, that
4: would be really cool because yeah. I would get this concept of, yeah. Yeah.
2: yeah, no, it's fun to be in that situation, it doesn't happen all the time, but <laughs> <laughs>
4: yes. Yeah.
2: I'm sorry. How do you suggest we rehearse the
4: show? I'm talking about rehearsing, mm-hmm. so
1: you have a sensibility of the flow to the
2: students. Yeah, how do you rehearse them? Like in the rehearsal hall, you
4: mean? Or? Yeah,
1: exactly. The, uh, <laughs> the Dreamgirls example with the with the people yeah. moving them. Yeah. You know, with, with,
5: yeah, oh, I think there's a,
2: there's a usually a couple way. I mean, a turntable is an obvious one. Usually, if you're doing a show with a turntable, you rent a turntable because it's too too hard to not do it, you know, unless it's just one little element show. But for things moving on the show, I think. PAs are a lot, you know. <laughs> you, you, you literally. Uh, I mean, we've done it on shows before. Marty's saying, for you know, Dreamgirls had five screens that moved up and down, rotated, flew. The flying we couldn't do in rehearsal, all, but we basically made essentially a rolling rack, like a rolling uh, rack for costumes, and hung a drape over it to match it, and had five of them out there. And there were ten PAs that moved stuff around. <laughs> <laughs> It's it's yeah. tough. I mean, you do need yeah. to.
5: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I'm just curious about this. How many things need to be preset so uh, that it always you know, always happens? And how many things can be driven by sensor?
2: Driven by which? Sensor.
5: Sensor. Sensor. Censored. Yeah. Instead of well, let's say you know, go through a technical, mm-hmm. it's preset. All the apples are. Moving, but but let's say that um, the timing is off for a little bit or the actor comes in slowly. And what, what activates something is not a, not the computer, but the actor.
2: It's tough. And I mean, so
5: it's it, it, in that sort mm-hmm, of thing mm-hmm. because of movement. You know, so that something doesn't happen if the actor holds back for a few moments because it's right for the scene. Mm-hmm. Then will that activate instead of the actor having to follow the tape? No.
2: Well, I think the first step to that is your stage manager, which is, you know, everybody always asks, that, well, you know, when I give talks to, like, you know, or, or give, you know, yeah. reporters are always like... Well it just runs itself. Well, it doesn't really run itself. The stage manager is obviously your first step. And, you know, that's why you don't, you know, you could write a show. There's nothing in this technology wouldn't let you write a cue where you press the first cue and everything else in the entire two-hour show cues off of it. Right. You don't do that for that reason because the actors are a little different. That's why the stage manager is the most important person out there. He's calling cues to that person that's hitting the button for the automation is getting a cue from the stage manager who's watching the actor. Now, the other side, if something just goes a little wrong and you need to slow down, most of the automation system. In fact, pretty much all of them have the ability now to, like, just take take a switch. Literally, it's a button, and just pull it down and slow everything down a little bit, and then speed it back up again. It's tough to do that, and if you've got a lot of pieces interacting, you've got to be careful about that because sometimes they will crash into each other. But usually, you can slow down pieces, and you know it's it's where you really want to have a good automation operator because you know if there are certain pieces you know are problematic, you can pull them out of a sequence and either stop them individually or slow them down individually and let everything else go on. So it becomes it's a really complicated job to be a really good automation operator. Well, what I'm
5: asking, I guess, but who's in control, the stage manager or the actor? That's really, in a way, what I'm asking. Yeah. right. Because if the actor makes a decision that's really right, because this is live theater, we're mm-hmm. not doing films. Right. And and it's right for the production. Mm-hmm. Can that can, can the can the the technology be dependent on that, or is it the stage manager who says, okay, now this is what we're going to do? You know, and that's really interesting.
2: Well, I think I think the stage manager determines. You, it's hard if you've got a sequence of 10 things moving in five seconds it's hard to change that sequence when it starts though right. it certainly can be dependent on the actor if the actor takes a little that. more time to get to that point i mean generally the stage manager is calling a go on a cue line now if the actor takes 10 seconds eight seconds or you know 20 seconds to get there you know because you've got audience response you're waiting for so you, right. it's, it's really stage of
5: what's going on but the
1: remember time. that that you're giving that you you could you could design a system and sensors mm-hmm. that, that you would be giving that actor that responsibility, and, so some,
5: some and, and that,
1: that actor lights, really that wants to fill that, that moment, yeah. and yet at the end, he knows he has all of this responsibility to hit this one sensor so that all this stuff can happen. You know, you, you have to remember that the, the, there's a huge responsibility that that actor. You have to. Be careful whether, whether you want to give that to to them but I because understand. you want them to feel...
5: I understand that, but what I'm thinking is that everything is related in a way, and the feeling yeah. of the whole show has to be interwoven. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. if that's possible, maybe the the audience, the, the stage manager is tuned into watching the actor, the actor, mm-hmm. etc., you know, mm-hmm. that kind of... Well, we're not you know following the technology and following the music and pretty soon. We gotta show that we don't okay. Mm -hmm.
4: Yeah.
2: So
5: well, I, I understand what you mean about things colliding
2: this. Yeah, well, I think it's YQ. I mean, a, a big show nowadays, with, you know, having 400 automation cues in a two-hour show is not odd anymore. You know, and those 400 cues are all called, you know, so it's like, you know, it does allow the show to take on its own flow. If, if it's a slower night or a faster night, you know, the cues start and stop at different points. But but the trouble is, for most for the most part, once a cue starts and it stops, which, you know, might only be a 20, a 10-second, a 5-second, a 20-second sequence, it's hard to play around with that sequence you you have the ability always have the ability to stop it if there's a problem or in, like i say in some cases you can slow it down but it's it's difficult i mean uh, you know i used the, the example early on the flying king it's you know you have all these clouds going out it's all an automated sequence it's really up to the conductor at that point to keep tempo with the scenery going out
5: <laughs> i
4: understand <laughs> yeah um
2: There's a lot of part of it. There's a lot of numbers to enter. I mean, to change a cue, you got a you know, as Mark said, you got an A cell number, a D cell number, a speed number, and you ha- you, you kind of have to enter because they all interact with each other. You know, the A yeah, cell. So you, you got all those pieces, but I think from from an operator's point of view, especially when there's a, you know, 60 effects that they're dealing with, it's just thinking time a little bit. I mean, even the best operators, you you know, you can't just type it in and hit a button and see what happens. What you can do with lighting. Which is why lighting tends to move a little faster on a step by step. Because you know, if, if if all the lights move that way and you meant them to do that way, so what? <laughs> you know, you just. But you can't do it with scenery, so it's tough. I, I think you know, some of it is just you know a good operator. and I've done it myself. It's like you program, it, then you sit there and look at it for a minute, and you you know, because you don't want to press that button, especially when the actors are on stage. You know, you can't really do that. You got to be careful. So it just, it's and and the interaction of all the pieces of scenery. Like if it's if it's a matter literally of moving that chair on a pallet from, you know, one side of the stage to the other and that's the only thing out there, that's pretty quick. You just that's really just setting a target number, but you still have to adjust the speed, the A cell, So you know, at a minimum you're you're typing in at least four or five numbers on each thing. There there are newer systems, you know, again, depending on the system, there are systems that allow you to do that graphically. When we flew the Chitty Chitty Bang Bang car, you know, there was no way you could enter numbers for that, so it was all done graphically. It actually gave us a readout on a screen of lots of curves, of interacting curves, you know, the pitch, the yaw, and we could actually grab a curve and pull it up to the side, or or, or we could do, which was really cool on that show, you could actually stop in the middle of of a big sequence, you could stop say, stop there, bring it back 10 seconds. And you could actually bring the car back 10, ten seconds in time and smooth out that curve. And that, that was you know, a little bit more, what seems more modern. You, know, you could actually take the curve and pull it out a little bit and just smooth it out a little bit on, on the screen. But still, it wasn't any faster, I don't think. It just, it, but it, it was faster in the sense that by moving that curve, it essentially moved 30 or 40 numbers for you that you didn't have to actually figure out to type in or or figure out how to type in. It was, It would have been impossible to do that show with... <laughs> was, I, don't I, <laughs> <act>. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> I think, you know, we're still doing theater, not movies yet. But, <laughs> no, I don't think so. There's always going to be... You know, the, nice
1: the, the, the thing that can happen, and uh, uh, this happened for me a little bit, I, I'm not, when I see a, a high-tech show, I you know, I'm, I'm a little bit judgmental and I'm a little bit curious about how all this stuff is happening. But it can also be used to to tell the story. the the parts between the story you're being told and getting to the next part of the story, for me, become very very interesting. and and I, and I, and I think it becomes part of that. And I think in its in its best world, its automation should be used like that. But. So, in that in that sense, is
5: the person who's programming the automation? Do they ever think of
4: themselves as a designer, or is the director and designer clearly so? Besides duration and speed, location and direction, what else does a director
2: need to consider to prepare for tech? Well, again, I, you know, what all's moving? Do you want, does everything want to stop at the same time? Does, do, you know, do, do we want to layer it in where the things downstage stop and the things upstage stop? And you know, some of that, you know, that's what some of these things we're talking about, you look at some of that in the model and get an idea of the pre-visualization and help with that, certainly doing it, sitting in the shop and seeing it happen. Uh, you know it, but I hate to say it at some point you've got to see it happen on stage and, what's you know.
5: been most useful in terms of your own uh,
2: interaction with directors how, how has the relationship worked best with the director yeah I think getting you know it's, it's it's probably almost I find I probably work more with the designer that closely you know the director talks to the designer you know I don't really like that what do you think and the designer well you know maybe we should pull that off at a different speed I mean as far as you know uh, different people do it differently I think the person programming it the better programmers do have a certain sense for it, and they kind of watch for things and clean up some of the little edges that are hard to see when you're out there. Uh, usually when I'm doing a show, I'm out in the front of the house on a headset actually translating what the designer or the director is saying to me, like, you know, that needs to happen 20% faster, or, you know, and sometimes I, you know, I have an idea what they really mean by that, and then you, you change it and take a look at it. Uh, but, but, yeah, I think, I think the best, auto, you know, part of your question, best automation operators do have a certain sense for it and they want to have a certain idea of where it's going. I mean, I find some of my better operators, like I say, when you're moving 20 or 30 things, there's a big picture you're looking for. A good automation operator looks for the finer points, okay? You want everything to stop at once, well, okay, it looked like it stopped at once, but you know, the reality is it stopped a half a second later than that, and they'll clean all that little stuff up in the background.
0: But realistically, how much is automation being used at the regional and off Broadway levels, as opposed to the big, multi-million budget <laughs> it's spectacular?
2: I, obviously, not as much. I mean, it's all you know. It's slowly getting into universities a little bit more, but it's expensive. You know, it's ex- even moving lights. Are, you know, just now, I think breaking in. You know, the better universities are the bigger. The, ones with bigger budgets are starting to see that a little bit more but I still don't think you see too many off-Broadway or, you know, with 150 moving lights in it or, you know, 60 moving automated effects.
0: So it was like the bare bones level of automation that is achievable with that kind of budget? Is it just the moving lights like the first tier that you would go for?
2: Well, the mo- moving lights and moving scenery, they're, you know, they're similar but they're serving different purposes. I mean, Basic automated effects, what I would call, you know, moving a deck track, an automated winch in a deck that's got to move things across stage, that's pretty basic. Flying a drop-in is pretty basic. I mean, those are, you know, both those kind of effects that cost you about $2,500 to prep it in the shop. It costs you about 200 to $250 a week to rent it. Uh, and then you've got to install it, which is, you know, the rest of the money that gets eaten away at it.
1: But, uh, but yeah, it's... But it, but in that sense, uh, turntables have been used in regional theaters for years. and done. Uh, Perfectly well, and that's now that's all automated.
2: But it is tough, and I think from a director's point of view, it's, it's a hard thing to deal with. Is the amount of time it can be eaten up And I've done, I've done new shows. You know, I do one. I won't say the name i you will know, I had a turntable. and It's like, you know, it was a new show. It needed. It, it obviously was, you know, being worked on. You know, and it's like, you know, every time the director made a minor change, like sped up the turntable by, you know, ten percent. It would be three hours of work, you know. But mostly for lighting in that case, because they were they were following everything on his turntable, all these lights, you know. So it's like you know the director had, yeah, what do we, you know, let's cut that line. Well, cutting that line would turn into three hours of work, you know. So you know how many lines can you adjust in a, in an eight-hour rehearsal period? Suddenly, instead of like you know making all these huge changes you want to make, you're finding you're getting bogged down in the two or three little things you wanted to get done. You know, you wanted to get twenty things done that day, you get two things done that day, uh, you know, and that's a consideration. I mean, there there obviously is an end result. Result that you you know you've got to assume is worth it if you're going down that road, but you know you, it's it's going to take time away from something else. You know, like Marty was saying, you know, if you want a million dollar effect, it'll be great, it'll look great, but you know, there's there's a budget to consider for both time and money that you know it's going to come from something else.
3: If if I understand you correctly, when you were talking about finances that um, it costs more upfront because of the building and mm-hmm. installing and whatnot, but. You're replacing that with what is the week-to-week labor cost. So the longer the show runs, the cheaper the automation is for you because you're not putting out the labor each week. Is
5: that correct? Yeah,
2: that is true. I mean, if, if it's tr- it's very seldom a, a straight you know one-for-one one, you know option. You don't. You don't usually automate something just to get somebody off the show because it's no, usually I mean, other reasons. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
3: yeah. But, I'm, but, but that's because it's going to cost you the bulk yeah. up front. Right. But then as it yeah.
5: runs. because yeah, the longer it
2: runs, the cheaper it gets. <laughs> I, <laughs> Which I is it. About it. Does a union ever say, oh, well, you've got to have a
5: guy around to, even though you don't mean it because you're, you're replacing him with all
1: this stuff? No, the you You know, I, I, it, yeah, I, I, I was around when pre moving lights yeah. and uh, moving lights came along, and boy, oh, boy good trained technicians are never out of work mm-hmm. good trained technicians and uh, uh, it used to be the first the first workshop that was set up in a separate location was the moving light workshop the first road boxes that came off because they were fixing the moving lights from the last gig that broke mm-hmm. so it's it's more work for technicians and quite frankly it's fulfill it's demanding it's rigorous and it's fulfilling work so I, I you know, it's, it's, uh, I, I, I think it's good. I, I don't, I don't think it should be thought of as, as a labor saving, although yeah, that good. aspect is certainly part of it, yeah. I mean,
2: there, you know, I think. It allows you to do shows you couldn't have done I mean you know it's like you know some of the shows you know you just it's an afford thing, but it's also like repeatable you can't have there's nobody can afford to have ten slime on the rail, but sometimes it's really cool to see ten things moving at once you know so there's some really great yeah. effects that you can do with automation you just you know it just wouldn't be practical otherwise you know like you know what you're saying i mean there was obviously there's some resistance uh, there was resistance earlier on, but I think the shows have gotten larger you know you know it's I think more people are working and they're working longer hours because of the automation and shows are lasting you know and
1: I'm a newcomer but I'm very impressed I'm very impressed with the skill of the labor force that I've seen in New York the ones that I've you know I've worked in you know a a, a, a quarter a quarter of the theaters here but it's it's very impressive I'm not questioning the skill I'm questioning
5: whether or not they're often replaced
1: because they're not needed because of the technology right right yeah
2: I mean, there's obviously a little bit of that that goes on. I mean, you know, if you, you know, obviously, if you, you know, if you have a smaller show, it's got five flying pieces in it. If those five flying pieces are not moving at the same time, you're much better off to have a guy up there running it. It'll be faster for you. It'll actually be easier to do your tech period. But you know, if you want three of those things to fly at one time, now you got a decision to make. You do you automate just those three and then have one automation operator and a flyman, or do you automate everything? Uh, you know, and that, you know, that's decision you don't as a director you don't get involved in that decision too much it becomes a little bit more of myself and the designer and the producer deciding which is the best way to go here and you know some of it will depend on how long the show is well you're saying if it's a short-run show you're not going to pay off the cost of doing the automation anyways you you know we add more people on a row. but you know it's it's i, I think like I said, i think some of automation started trying to save labor i don't think it's really done that much. In fact, I think from a labor bill point of view, it's probably bloomed everything up because it just takes longer to do everything. You spend more time in a the theater. The show's got bigger. You know, it all kind of works out, I think, in the end. Yeah? Um, speaking on, like, the huge scope, um, yeah.
3: so, um, and kind of like our obligation to the producers and what you mentioned about the producers, and mm-hmm. we want the show to go on. So this trigger goes off and says you know, they hear through the headset, it's not gonna happen, that move's not gonna happen. Yeah. So, like Wagner's cycle and whatnot, he had a number of backups, and Paj had a number of backup plans if certain things didn't happen, It was new choreography, the actors knew it didn't work, yeah. there was something new. How often does that, does that happen, even on things that are just like small, like sm- even smaller scales, obviously that's huge, but, yeah. or even larger scales, do, you, do we need to concern ourselves with backups as a director? it's
2: not going on? I think, I find, it's probably not really where you need to spend your time. I, you know, I think it really, I, I find generally that comes more from the production stage manager than anybody. Okay. And, and, you know, Nobody has time to sit through what, how many things can go wrong here. Nobody, you know, it's really not where you want to spend your time. I find in most cases those decisions get made really quickly at the moment. You know, you come in and do an hour and a half check. We just had one of these happen on Annie recently where a major piece of scenery was discovered an hour before half. A lot of scurrying around, a lot of re-blocking, a lot of, you know, getting actors on stage, okay, you're going to go here, don't do that, and, you know, the show went on, and, you know, went up five minutes late, but, you know, nobody in the audience really probably realized that something wasn't in that night. Uh, I think, you know, I think as shows get older, you know, run longer, you find how much stuff you can get away with not having, it's kind of amazing <laughs> sometimes, like, well, no, that wasn't in, you did the show, okay. <laughs> I mean, uh, Miss Saigon with the helicopter sequence, which was a great sequence. It was really, you know, I think it was really a brilliant thing for the show. When we did the tour for it, you know, I'd say once every three or four months, the helicopter didn't work. You know, the amazing thing was almost no one in the audience ever realized it because all the lighting was still there, all the sound was still there. You know, how do you know the helicopter didn't land? All these things are swirling around. It was kind of an amazing thing. You sit back and think, oh, do we really need that, you know, at that time, probably a quarter million dollar effect. You know, nobody even realized it wasn't in time. <laughs> but... But you do have to think about it. I think, you know, I think as a director maybe you don't have to think about it too much, but you know, uh, stage managers think about it a lot. I think about it a lot. You know, what do we do when that doesn't work? Cuz you know, inevitably things don't work every once in a while. There's a lot of pieces and parts in these things. <laughs> what, what <was> the <laughs> Space. It doesn't take it doesn't take so much space on stage. Motors are usually they're up on the grid. Oh. For flying sequences, they're pretty much mounted up on the grid in most cases. In newer theaters, we. We'd love to have them put a, an actual level in where we can put the automation, but that certainly didn't happen in New York. <laughs> so, normally they go up on the grid, or the basement gets taken over. I mean, you've probably, if you walk into some bigger shows, you know, walk into the basement at Phantom of the Opera sometime. There is no basement, it's just a big mechanical room with all the effects coming out of the basement before. And that was a long time ago. Uh, you know, a lot of time, basement space gets eaten up really quickly with the automation. It, it, we try to keep it off the deck because it really just isn't practical for anybody to do that. When you do a tour, it's a little Differently, where you can't really take it in the basement of the grid, then you end up taking up space. But when you do a tour, you generally have a lot more space than you have in New York, so it's less of a problem.
3: <laughs> you had mentioned uh, seeing the set in the, in the scene shop. Is that an added cost that producers and directors need to take into account?
2: It, generally speaking, yes. It depends how far you want to go with it. I mean, I'd say for, for a big show. Certainly individual pieces, we always try to set them up at a shop, and it's kind of a you know, you write it into this tech, you need to prove to us this, this works before it leaves your shop. So, you know, some of it's individual pieces, and when it's individual pieces, you know, we'll call the director and the designer, thinking, okay, next Monday we're going to go out and do, you know, the final test at the shop for this piece if you want to come out and see it. And depending on what it is, you know, it's just something flying in, but, you know, like for, again, for Mermaid, where we had a great big boat with big Hells, you know, the designer and the director were very interested, so, you know, we brought that together. It's hard, it gets more expensive to bring all the pieces together. And there are very few shops that can you, there are very few shops where you can set the whole thing up. Now we have done it before when we did Dream Girls, which you talked about, because our first stop was in Korea, <laughs> which wasn't very practical to do teching. We actually rented a theater up at West Point and went up there and spent a week teching the show, you know, so it was no actors, it was just, you know, designers and director going through it. But there is some, there normally is some cost to it. Uh, especially if you want to get to the point of sitting there and actually cueing the show, it's one thing for the shop. You know, it's part of their job to make sure it works and is running and debugged. But for them to spend, give you three days sitting in the back of their shop, or a week sitting in the back of the shop with actors maybe moving around, that's going to cost something. But it's not, you know, we're, we're talking you know twenty thousand for a big show or thirty thousand. We're not talking billions of dollars, and it, you know, and it can save you a lot of money down the road especially if it's a show where a lot of things are moving, it can be worth it because, you know, because normally that period of time will happen before you'll start rehearsals. Cause, uh, and so it's like, hey, <laughs> that's what I'm doing. <laughs> but
3: because of the cost involved, is it realistically really the director's call or is it the producer's call in terms well, of the automation? is there-
2: whether, it's good, whether you're going to do this after. yeah
3: I mean really it's a producer's call right? well it's
2: obviously it all yeah. comes down to the producer at some point whether they're going to spend the money but I find in most cases you know if you make a strong enough case that there's, <laughs> there's these 20 reasons why this has to happen I mean I haven't found too many producers they know we're not going to do it I mean you know I mean like say Motown, the current one, it was, you know, became pretty obvious early on. There's just so many moving pieces and so many things that, you know, to take into account. It's like, you know, we need to set this up in the shop. And once we set it up in the shop, the co- the additional cost saying, you know, okay, we are going to leave it set up for four or five days and actually bring everybody out and play around with it for a while wasn't that significant. And are stage managers
1: often invited?
3: I, I'm a stage oh, yeah. manager. Yeah. They often well, the
2: stage manager's get very involved, you know, for for a big show because you try to do as much queuing you know, as much as you can. The stage manager has to write the cues, pretty much working with the designers or working through the storyboard, or all get involved with in that too. But you know, they they need to set up the queue numbers and stuff, so they definitely get involved. And just just to mention on Melissa's question, sometimes the
4: director actually knows
3: more about the needs of the show than the
5: producers. Yeah. Yeah. But
3: I just meant because the budget is involved, you know, your grand ideas may, <laughs> you know,
5: sometimes.
2: Well, yeah, all, I mean, it always, I mean, the general manager, the producer, somebody that's, you know, if somebody's going to write a check for more than a couple thousand dollars, somebody's going to have to approve it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I find, I found myself, most producers on a bigger show, they realize there's certain there's certain money that's got to be spent to make it happen, you know. Thank thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to SDCF Masters of the Stage. This program was made possible by support from Stage Directors and Choreographers Society, the National Labor Union celebrating five decades representing the needs and aspirations of its members, and generous funding from the NEA, the New York State Council on the Arts, and the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council.